Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Please help us this morning to understand what it says and to love it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine if you did not have access to a Bible. If you physically could not get your hands on a Bible. What do you think would happen? What do you think it would be like? Well, let me give you an example of a time just like that. In the Middle Ages, most people couldn't get a Bible. Even if they could, the only translation available widely in the West was in Latin. Most people didn't speak it. And what difference did it make? For a start, most people didn't know how to be saved. They didn't know what it meant to be a Christian. The priests and church authorities told them that being a Christian meant coming to church and taking the sacraments. They didn't teach about Jesus. They didn't teach about trusting in his death and resurrection. They didn't teach about forgiveness and eternal life that comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the Bible, people had no truthful word from God on how to be saved. So they didn't know. And the people didn't know what God wanted for them. They couldn't hear his word and know how God wanted them to live. They just had to rely on the church and the hierarchy to tell them what to do. And the church hierarchy exploited people's ignorance. You know how people used to become ministers in those days? They used to buy up the rights to a church. It was called simony. You could literally buy a position as a minister and you could collect the offerings from the church. At that time, everyone had to contribute offerings. It was like a tax. As the minister, you never had to go to the church. You didn't have to do things like uh, teaching or preaching or showing up or anything like that. You just bought the rights and you got the offering. And the church had all kinds of other ways of exploiting people. There were things like indulgences. Basically, an indulgence was a little get-out-of-hell ticket or get-out-of-purgatory ticket. The church used to sell these indulgences to people for money. Give us your money, we'll give you a get-out-of-hell pass. A great gift idea for yourself or for a loved one. It was a disgrace. And without the Bible in their hands, there was nothing people could do. They didn't know any better. They just had to trust those disgraceful authorities. They had no word from God himself to tell them the truth. Imagine if you could not get access to a Bible. It'd be devastating, wouldn't it? How would we know the good news about Jesus? How would we know the way we should live for Jesus? How could we have any relationship with God at all? If you didn't have a Bible, you'd be desperate to get one, wouldn't you? And that's what it was like in communist countries last century. The Bible was banned... And people were desperate to get hold of them. In his book, Tortured for Christ, Richard Vermbrandt tells the story about the situation in Russia in 1969. Let me quote from him. He says, Thousands of Christians have not seen Bibles for 20 to 50 years in satellite countries and in Russia. It is pathetic to hear a Russian begging for even one page of the Bible. He feeds his soul on it. They are happy to exchange a cow or a goat for a Bible. 
One man I know traded his wedding ring to get a battered New Testament. Tells the story of a village who sent out some men to go and work for a whole winter, shoveling snow, so they could get money to try and purchase an old battered Bible. When they got hold of it, they cut it up carefully into 30 sections, spread it around the village, and they kept swapping it around with each other so they could all read it. Life without God's word would be a disaster. The Bible is so important to us. Well, Ezra chapters 7 to 8 tells the story of how Israel got God's word back. As we've seen so far in Ezra, Israel have come home to their land. They've been away in exile in Babylon and then Persia, but God has brought them home. And over these last couple of weeks, we've seen how they rebuilt the temple, restarted the sacrificial system. Well, now in Ezra chapter 7, we actually jump forward 57 years in time. We come to 458 BC. We move from the reign of Darius, king of Persia, through to the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia. And we meet the man, Ezra. We see that he's a priest from the family of Aaron. And we hear time and time and time again that he is well-versed in God's law that he gave to Israel. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 1. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of all of those other people that I made Carmel in a read to you, down to verse 5, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. He gets some help from King Artaxerxes and he heads off to Jerusalem to join the Jews there. Halfway through verse 6. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month. And he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. And then notice there the reason. Notice why God's gracious hand is on Ezra. Notice why God has brought him to Jerusalem. It's because of Ezra's love for God's law. It's because of his passion to teach God's law in Israel. Verse 10 there. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. That's Ezra's passion, and that's why God wants Ezra in Israel, to bring his word to them, to bring them his law. Well, that's kind of an overview of chapters 7 to 8. Now what we do is we we step back in time a little bit and we look at the letter that Artaxerxes sent with Ezra to go to, to Jerusalem. It starts off with commands to Ezra himself. It says that Ezra has actually got a copy of God's law in his hands. And he has to go to Judah and he has to check out how they are going with regard to God's law. Compare how they're living with the way God's law says they should be living. Verse 11. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest and teacher, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel, in case you hadn't got it yet, 
Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, in case you haven't got it yet, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. Now, I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisers to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. There's the job. In the next section, in verses 15 to 20, Artaxerxes gives Ezra a whole heap of stuff to take with him, gold and silver, and he has to use it to buy animals to, to make sacrifices in the temple, no doubt sacrifices for the king and so on. Then from verses 21 to 24, Artaxerxes addresses the local governors, the governors of Trans-Euphrates. That's the part of the empire where Judah is. And he tells them to help Ezra out with food and wine and, and silver and stuff like that. And he prohibits them from taxing anybody who is working as part of the temple. Then the letter finishes with another address directly to Ezra. Again, he's told what his job is. He has to bring God's law to Israel. He has to administer justice to those who do know God's law and he has to teach those who don't. Verse 25. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. So that's the king's letter. Sets out what Ezra's job is. Yeah? Okay, now in verse 27, Ezra himself speaks. He gives us his own diary of, uh, of the events of what happened on the trip. He starts off there by praising God for the king's letter. And he says he gathered some of the leading men from Israel to come with him on his mission in verse 27. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favour to me before the king and his advisers and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. In chapter 8, verses 1 to 14, we get a list of the men, these leading men who came with him. Now, it's about 1,500 men who came with him. Uh, then for the rest of the chapter, we, we see a couple of problems that Ezra faced on his trip. The first problem is in verse 15. He finds out that he's got no Levites who will come with him. No doubt they were already doing pretty well in Persia and had no desire particularly to go down to Jerusalem. The problem is, though, Ezra's got all this stuff that is for the temple. And God has said that only the Levites should carry things for the temple. So he can't go without them. And uh, so Ezra chapter 8, verse 15. I assembled them at the canal that flows towards Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. So what he does, he gets together a posse and he uh, sends, off, sends them off to go and get some Levites. And he manages to get a good bloke by the name of Sherebiah, along with about another 30 or so of these Levites. That's in verse 18. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man, from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers, 18 men. And Hashabiah, together with Jeshiah, 
from the descendants of Merari and his brothers and nephews, 20 men. Well, that's problem number one solved. But straight away we see there's another problem. I think uh, Ezra's dug himself a little bit of a hole here because he's been boasting to King Artaxerxes about how powerful God is. And now he's got everything that he wanted, tons and tons of gold, and he's going to go off to Jerusalem. But he's too ashamed now to ask the king for a guard because he's been boasting about how powerful God is. And so he's got to go trekking off with women and children and tons of gold and no armor guard uh, van to carry it all with him. And uh, so he gets the people to start fasting and praying and asking God for protection. Verse 21. Verse 21. There by the Ahava Canal I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. In the final or second final section, then we see how God answered their prayer. He protects them from enemies and from bandits, and every single bit of the stuff that they take with them gets to Jerusalem safely, and it's all fully accounted for. We didn't read this before, so let's read the whole thing from verse 24. Verse 24. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, together with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brothers. And I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the articles that the king, his advisers, officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of our God. I weighed out to them 650 talents of silver. That's 22 tons of silver. Silver articles weighing 100 talents. at 3.4 tons. 100 talents of gold. That's 3.4 tons of gold. 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 darics and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. You can imagine they would have been quite concerned about travelling down to Jerusalem without a guard. Verse 28, I said to them, You, as well as these articles, are consecrated to the Lord. The silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem before the leading priests and the Levites and the family heads of Israel. Then the priests and Levites received the silver and gold and sacred articles that had been weighed out to be taken to the house of our God in Jerusalem. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem, where we rested three days. On the fourth day, in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and gold and the sacred articles into the hands of Merimoth, son of Uriah the priest. Eleazar, son of Phinehas, was with him, and so were the Levites, Jozebad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Binui. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the entire weight was recorded at, the same, at that time. A safe journey, and everything is accounted for. And so Ezra and his team offer sacrifices to God, and uh, they deliver the king's orders to the governors of the trans-Euphrates, you know, the orders about helping out Ezra and not taxing anybody in the temple. And that's where the chapter concludes. And so there we have it. Ezra is safely in Jerusalem. This man who loves God's law. This man who's got a copy of God's law in his hands. 
This man who's been given the job by the king of teaching and administering God's law to the Jewish people. If you think about it, it's a bit like the first exodus. Remember the first exodus where God brought Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land? Well, they built the tabernacle and they, uh, they offered sacrifices. But do you remember what happened when they went to Mount Sinai? God gave them his law to remind them how he'd rescued them, to, to show them how to live as his people, to, to be in relationship with them. That's what happened in the first exodus. Now it's happening again. But of course the problem after the first exodus was this. Israel didn't obey God's law. That's why they got thrown out of the land. That's why they ended up in exile in Babylon. They had God's law when they were there in the land the last time, but the problem was they wouldn't obey God's law. Well, here in Ezra, Israel are getting another chance. They're back in the land. And now Ezra has brought God's word. And so at the end of the chapter, we're left on like this, this knife edge. As we're asking the question, what are they going to do this time? How will they respond to God's word this time? Have they learned their lesson from the exile? Are they going to obey this time? Or will they fail all over again? Well, that's a question that we're going to be addressing in the rest of Ezra next week. And then after a while in the book of Nehemiah for a few weeks as well, we will see over and over again exactly how Israel responded to God's law. And remember, of course, that's then the end of the Old Testament. But for now, for now, let's turn our attention to ourselves. Because like Israel here in Ezra, we are people who've been given God's word. In fact, we've got far more of God's word than Ezra had. Ezra had the law of Moses, perhaps some of the prophets or something like that. We've got the whole Old Testament, including Ezra's own story. More than that, we've got the New Testament, which shows us how Jesus is the complete fulfillment of the Old Testament, how he brings us forgiveness and eternal life and makes us, makes us God's people forever. We've got the whole Bible in our hands. And that hasn't come easily. I mean, Jesus had to die and live and die and rise again in order to, 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 to give us a biblical message in the first place, didn't he? God had to pour out his Holy Spirit on the apostles so they could accurately tell us the truth about Jesus in the New Testament. And in one sense, that's just the beginning of the process because it's got to get from there to us. And that hasn't happened easily. Right through history, people have had to do for us what Ezra did for Israel. They've had to struggle and suffer to get God's word to us. And many people throughout the centuries have endured terrible persecution for owning Bibles. In fact, that's part of how they came to decide what books to put in the Bible. Under the emperor Diocletian in about 300 AD, people basically were, um, Bibles were burned and people were burned if they owned Bibles. People basically had to work out and say, well, which bits of this really are God's word? Because I don't want to get burned for anything that's not seriously God's word. And that's part of how they came to understand really what is God's word in the Bible and sift out some of those things that shouldn't be there. People suffered. You know, right through the centuries, people have endured 
terrible persecution for copying and distributing Bibles. And people spent years of their lives faithfully, by hand, copying out the Bible word for word so it could be preserved for us. People have spent years of their lives faithfully translating the Bible. As I said before, in the Middle Ages, most people couldn't get hold of a Bible. And even if they could, they couldn't read it because the only translation widely available in the West at that stage was in Latin. That led, as we saw, to some terrible abuses. But at the risk of their lives, people worked hard to translate the Bible so that ordinary people could read it, so, we could realize, so they could realize how they were being exploited, so they could realize the truth about Jesus. John Wycliffe was a man who spent years translating the Bible out of his Latin Bible, translating it into English. For his trouble, he got declared a heretic. Well, there was William Tyndale. William Tyndale got hold of Erasmus's Greek Bible and, uh, and a Hebrew Bible, and he diligently worked to translate the Bible into English that could be understood. He was hounded by the authorities. He eventually had to go into exile in Europe. From there, in Europe, he finished translating, and he started sending Bibles home to England. Had to send them really small because uh, they were declared illegal in England, and any that were found were burned. Eventually, Tyndale was caught, and they executed him. People have struggled and suffered to get the Bible to us. And with God's gracious help, they've ultimately succeeded. Because we've now got easy access, don't we? You and I have easy access to Bibles. You only need to reach forward and pick it up on a Sunday morning. And you can have a Bible in your hand. If you're like me, you don't just have one Bible. You've got dozens of Bibles in all sorts of translation, many of them in clear and modern English, sitting up there on your shelf. It hasn't come easily. Many people have followed in Ezra's footsteps. They've worked hard to give us access to God's Word, and now we've got it. They're on our shelves. But I guess the question for us is the same question as it was for Israel. That is, what will we do with God's word? Will we ignore it? Will we take it for granted? Will we leave it up there on the shelf to gather dust? It's an incredible privilege that we have access to Bibles. Many people in this world would dearly love to have even one of your Bibles, even a page of one of your Bibles. If you, if you gave it to them, they would hand copy it. They'd, they'd, they'd copy it over and over again and send it out to all the people they know. They would read it. They'd meditate on it. They'd memorize the whole thing. I don't want to sound too much like a parent telling their children to eat their dinner because lots of people in the world don't have enough food. And I know that the Bible is difficult to read in places, but you get the point, don't you? If we didn't have it, we'd be desperate to have it. We've got it. And so we ought to use the privilege that we have. We ought to love the Bible. We ought to read the Bible regularly, faithfully, diligently. We ought to study the Bible on our own, together. We ought to meditate on the Bible. 
We ought to memorise the Bible. And we ought to do what the Bible says. That is, put our faith in the Jesus of the Bible and live for him as the Bible teaches. The Bible is God's own word to us. It is vital to our relationship with God, central to our relationship with God. Without it, we'd be lost here on earth. But by God's grace, we've got it. And so we need to diligently read and study and obey the Bible. More than that, I reckon we need to be like Ezra. We ought to try to get the Bible into people's hands. We ought to join in the long historical struggle to give people access to the Bible because that struggle is going on today. Here, in this world today, Bibles are being smuggled in countries where people are still not allowed to own them. Today, there are something like 672 Bible translations in progress so people can get the Bible in a language they can understand. Perhaps you might think about joining the Gideons as people who put Bibles in hotels and hospitals and schools. I still remember vividly the story of Jean Stipp, which I went to visit her in Longerville Hospital one time, and uh, I forgot to bring a Bible, and she always insisted that I read a Bible when I came to visit her, and so I opened the drawer in the hospital to pull out a Bible. There was none there. I said, oh, they don't have any Bibles here. She said, well, that'll be fixed by next week. And sure enough, it was. Every, uh, every bed had a, had a Bible next to it by the following week under Jean Stipwich's iron hand. <clears throat> On your order of service there, I've given you a practical thing you can do. The Bible Society is a thing called the Bible a Month Club. You give $8 a month, and with the money they print a Bible, and they give it to someone in a country where they can't afford it or can't get hold of one. So a a worthwhile thing to be part of. Okay. Ezra brought God's word to Israel. The big question, how are they going to respond? God's word has come to us as well in much fuller form than in Ezra's time. It's an incredible privilege. The question is, what are we going to do? Are we going to leave them on the shelf to gather dust? Or are we going to, get, going to let God's word dwell in our hearts? Will we faithfully read it? Will we, will we let it change our lives? And will we work to join in the struggle and get the Bible out there to the people who need it? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has lived and died and risen again so that there is good news for us. We thank you that that good news is foreshadowed in the Old Testament of the Scriptures. We thank you that it is explained in the New Testament. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that we have your word breathed out by you in the Scriptures. Please help us to love your word, to read it diligently, and to let it change our lives. Help us to help each other in... uh, where it's tough to read the Bible or where we struggle with time or struggle to understand it, help us to help each other so that we may know you better. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.